Good morning. So glad to hear to see all of you. I haven't heard you yet, but I'm gonna. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together with loud and enthusiastic voices.
please pray with me? Our loving and heavenly Father, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as surpass our understanding. We pray that you would pour into our hearts such love toward you that we, loving in all things, you, above all things, you, that we may obtain your promises, which exceed all that we can desire. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.
As Pastor Kevin comes to read the scripture to us, I invite you to remain standing for the reading from the gospel. The reading comes from the gospel of Luke, chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died, too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels." They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Before you're seated, uh, take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. Just a couple of things I want to uh, mention to you. Um, they're coming up next Sunday. Uh, we are honoring our college graduates, uh, both the graduate degrees and uh, uh, master's degrees. And we hope you can join us, especially if you're a senior. But e- even if you're, you're not, we'd love to have you be a part of this. We're going to uh, have some, uh, some seniors will be sharing a little bit next week in the services. We want to pray for you. And we're going to do that in a little bit of a unique way than we probably done before, and uh, have a little uh, token of our uh, appreciation and our prayers to send with you as well. So we hope you'll join us next Sunday at uh, any of the worship services as we honor college graduates, um, those of Houghton and other places. Uh, Also, uh, thanks to everyone who brought uh, canning jars, and uh, we've had a great, uh, great supply of those, and we're probably, I think we probably have enough. If you still have some you want to give, we probably can find a use for them. Uh, and two weeks from today, you will hear what those are about. So uh, hopefully you'll be, a, be able to be a part of that. And I also want to uh, just mention that uh, we have, again, been blessed with the birth of another baby, Juliana Ekaterina Newborough, uh, to Bill John and Yulia, was born yesterday morning. And all doing well, and we give thanks to God 
for this gift of new life to them and to us as a church family. Thinking about this birth, it, it, you know, it reminded me that relationships can be some of the most awesome parts of our lives and some of the most difficult parts of our lives. I think some of our greatest joys are because of our relationships. And some of our deepest hurts and disappointments are because of our relationships. You take a minute to ponder that, and I think you probably will agree that the highs and the lows are probably in some way connected to relationships. And particularly the people who are closest to us. The people who are closest to us have the ability to bring the most amount of joy to us. And the people who are closest to us have the ability to bring the most amount of pain to us. And I think that as we think about the resurrection, as we think about the world to come, that you and I who are in Christ will inhabit the new heaven and the new earth that's been restored and redeemed by God. And all of creation, Romans 8 tells us, will be restored and redeemed by God when Christ reappears. And we're going to live in that world on this new heaven and new earth. And that means, at least to me, logically, we will have a relationship with each other. And it will be good and wonderful. And the relationship will be a gift of God. And at the heart of that relationship is who we are as people. I was reading something recently that uh, they, they said something that triggered a thought for me about the second of the Ten Commandments that says, don't make any graven images of God. And there are a lot of reasons why God would not want the Israelites to make graven images of him, not the least of which is that's how the pagans around them worship. But one of the, one of the reasons why God says, don't make images of me, is because he has already created an image of him. And that's us. When you read Genesis chapter 1, it's very clear. It says, God says, I'm going to create human beings in my image. And he does that. Human beings, none of creation is by accident. None of it is without thought. All of it is intentional. And specifically, human beings are created intentionally in the image of God. And that is a unique place for us. And what I find as you read through the scriptures is that when sin enters the world and and our understanding of God is corrupted and, and our natures are corrupted, it changes how we look at ourselves. And when you read the scriptures, you find that God's desire for human beings is holiness, it's righteousness. And we often think that is about us and God. It's about escaping the evils of the world. And in fact, there are lots of, of stories through the centuries of the church trying to escape the evil of the world in order to be righteous. But when you read the scriptures, you find that God says, I think, the most, the most profound understanding of holiness and righteousness is to be fully human. It took me a long time to grasp that because I had this mindset about humanity as being evil. 
because I know my own sinful self. And to be more of that seemed the opposite direction of holiness and righteousness. But if you go back to the garden and creation, what we're really saying is to be holy, to be righteous, is to be what God created us to be, to be fully human in him, to look like him, to live in his image. And so the Apostle Paul says that uh, we are to have the mind of Christ. We are to be fully engaged in who Christ is in all of our being. And to be fully human is to be holy. But here's the part of holiness and righteousness and what God's intent for us that's, that's maybe different than how we tend to think. We learn and we experience holiness and righteousness and being, being who God created us to be in relationship. Now, I would much rather think about being holy and being righteous in just relationship to God. Because that means I will feel holy if I pray like I'm supposed to and I go to church like I'm supposed to and I read the Bible like I'm supposed to and, and I... And I don't think thoughts that I shouldn't think. And I don't, I don't, all those kinds of things, just me and God. But scripture tells us from the beginning to the end that holiness, righteousness, is about relationship. God always intended it that way. We are in, we were created for relationship. So Genesis 2.18, God looks at Adam and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he creates The woman. It's in relationship that they exist. And as you read through the scriptures, you find over and over again, God saying to his people, like this passage in Philippians chapter 2, that we are to have the mind of Christ. And what does that look like? It looks like relationship. He talks about unity. He talks about love and fellowship. He talks about uh, being wholeheartedly with each other and agreeing with each other and loving one another. It is all defined as relationship. I think that's why Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says that what does God want from us? Does he want sacrifices to him? Well, not really. What he really wants us to do is to act justly and to love mercy And to walk humbly before God. Justice, mercy, relationship. I think that's, and and I am convinced, that is what our resurrected life will look like in relationship. And when Jesus says in Matthew 25 that if you're my disciples, you give thirsty people water and hungry people food and people who are naked, you clothe them and people who don't have a place to stay, you give them shelter and, and, and you help the, the lame and the crippled and, and you do everything you can for all the people who are on the margins and outside of society. You, you help them because that's the image of the resurrection. That's what it's going to be like. We're going to be in relationship with each other And it's going to be awesome. But it's hard for us now because relationships are not just the best thing in the world. They're also the most difficult thing in the world. Just last week, I was sitting in church at first service and I got a text. 
I don't usually get text during church. Fortunately, I have my phone turned on mute, so it didn't go off crazy. And I got this text. I looked at it. I recognized the person who it was from, somebody in the church. And, and the text just simply said, breakfast and three question marks. And I'm thinking, huh, it's 8.36 Sunday morning. I wrote back and said, I'm a little busy here. And they wrote back right away and said, oh, I'm sorry. I was meaning to text somebody else. And I texted you instead. Now, that kind of offended me for a couple of reasons. One is, I was hungry and I wouldn't have mind eating breakfast. But the other thing is, I wasn't the intention of the text. They didn't want to go to breakfast with me. They wanted to go to breakfast with somebody else. I just happened to be an accident to them. And I let them know that too after when I saw them that morning. I did the same thing a week or so before. I texted somebody else intending to text Cindy with an answer to a question she had. And I'm sure they, they looked at the text and thought, what in the world does that mean? Fortunately, neither of those missed texts were problematic. You know, there was nothing personal, nothing, you know, that would have embarrassed anyone. But the truth of the matter is, we hurt each other in a variety of ways, often accidentally. We don't mean to, but we do. And, and, and even when we don't mean to hurt one another, we still hurt one another. And we struggle with that. And our relationships are such that, you know, they can be great and they can be difficult. And it, it's, diff, it's hard to think that our lives of holiness, of being righteous, of being like Christ, are connected to people who sometimes are good to us and sometimes aren't. Who people we like and people we don't like. People we agree with and people we don't agree with. People that we love to be around and people who drive us crazy after 10 seconds. It's one thing to say, God and I are good. And I I can live with that. God and I are good. Or if there's something not so good, we can deal with it. It's a whole other thing for me to say, my righteousness rests on my wife and I being good. Or a husband wife being good. Or parent-child Or my sister, or my friend, or my neighbor, or my roommate, or my colleague, or my teammate, or my classmate. It's a whole new, different perspective when we start thinking about what it means to be holy, to be righteous, to be what God wants us to be, as we think about our relationships with other people. But Scripture keeps telling us that, and that is why... Scripture says the sign of God and his people is love. When Jesus is is teaching his disciples in the upper room, that last night before he goes to the cross, he could have said a hundred things. They'll know you're my disciples if you understand my scriptures. They'll know you're my disciples if you read this much of the Bible. They'll know you're my disciples if you get all your doctrine right. And all those things are important, but that's not what he says. They'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. That's it. And that's why the Apostle John, who's sitting in that room, listening to Jesus say that, writes later in his first letter, chapter 4, that if you say you that we have to continue to love one another. And if you don't love other people, then you don't love God. And I wrestle with that. 
I want my faith to be much more about me and God and not so much about me and other people, but that's not how Jesus designs it. I find it fascinating. Amanda and I were talking yesterday about how difficult it is to find songs to sing about this subject. We got all kinds of songs about worshiping God and about loving God and God loving us and all those things are great, but there is a minuscule amount of music that's been written about loving each other. And that's why a few years ago she wrote one. We'll sing it later. I just find that so interesting as we think about how we view our faith and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The end of John, 1 John 4, he says that if you say you love God but you hate your brother, let me just put in a word for you. You're a liar. You don't really love God. And there's something in us that wants to argue with that. But the reality is it's in relationship that we grow and mature because that's where we're challenged. That's where we live real life. And I am convinced that relationships will be so vital to the resurrected life because they're vital now. And they're vital now because they'll be vital then. Now you may be wondering, why in the world did we read that passage of Scripture this morning? It's kind of an obscure thing. We don't, you know, because we, it's hard to understand, we don't talk about it very much. But you have this scenario of Jesus is out teaching and it's getting close to the end of his life. And uh, the, people, the religious leaders are always trying to come to him and to trick him with, with uh, theological questions. And every time they walk away with their head between, the tail between their legs, like, I don't know what, what to do here. And eventually, even at the end of this one, it says, okay, we'll stop asking him questions because we're embarrassed every time we do. But the Sadducees, who John point, or, uh, Luke points out, don't believe in the resurrection, say, okay, Jesus, we've got one for you. Leverite marriage law says that if a woman, a man and woman are married, they don't have children, and he dies, she has to marry his brother. And that continues, and, she bears the, and they bear the child of the first husband. So there's this guy who has there's seven brothers. This guy has six brothers, and they all end up dying childless, and they all have to marry this woman. So then she dies, and in the resurrection, so whose husband is she? And the point really isn't about the law. It's about, see, Jesus, we're telling you, the resurrection's stupid. And Jesus looks at them and says, well, let me say this first. You guys don't understand the scriptures at all. You are totally ignorant about the scriptures. Now, that had to set them, set them back a little bit, because I think they thought they were pretty clever about the scriptures. And he says, what you don't understand is that in the resurrection, there are things that are the same, but there are things that are different. And one of the differences is how we view marriage. And Jesus seems to imply that the way we think of marriage now will not be the way we think of it then. I was talking with someone about that last week, and they said to me, I get it, but I don't like it. And I understand that. You know, you, you spend years with someone. They're your closest friend. You, your lives are bonded together, and you want that to continue. And in, in the same way, I would say with parent-child and siblings and friendships, that we have these bonds with each other, these intimacies of relationship, and we want those to continue. And maybe they will, but Jesus seems to imply that not in exactly the same way. And it's hard for us to grasp that. But if you look at, at the message, 
uh, Eugene Peterson, who always has a unique way of saying things in the message, says, Jesus said marriage is a, is a major preoccupation here, but not there. Those who are included in the resurrection of the dead will no longer be concerned with marriage, nor, of course, with death. They will have better things to think about, if you can believe it. All ecstasies and intimacies, then, will be with God. Some things the same, some things different. And somehow the the idea of marriage, it will be different. And the closest thing I can come to is, well, Juliana, who was just born yesterday morning, as, as the birth process was beginning, I'm pretty sure if you could, if we could have asked her a question, she would have said, I don't want to leave where I am. I'm good. I like this place. It's warm. It's comfortable. I'm nourished. I don't need any more than this. How could anything be better than this? This is perfect. My mother and I are closely connected. We're good. Just leave us alone. I suspect that's why God designed the birth process the way he did, where he basically forces the child out of the womb, because otherwise it's not going to go on its own. But we know from this side of it that as awesome as the womb is, what we find now in life is infinitely better. And none of us would want to go back to that life and think that was enough. And that's the closest I can think of to, and and she and her mother are always going to be connected to each other. But it's different. It's different, but it's better. And that's all I can think about when I come to my mind when I think about this idea of marriage and relationships in heaven. It will be different, but it will be better. And somehow we trust God about that. But Joel Green says there's something else going on in what Jesus says here. It's not just about trying to explain marriage. It's about the value of women in that culture and in the, and in the world to come. Just the fact that a, a woman is given in marriage and has no choice in the matter in that culture tells us something about how women are valued. And, and he says, when Jesus says there will be no more marriage of people marrying or giving in marriage, he's in essence saying women are not going to be treated like that anymore. Because in that culture, even though this is a story, it could have been true, it was probably not. But just the fact that they would shape a story and put the woman in this position tells you that they don't really think very highly of women. It's the same scenario you get only real life in John chapter 8 when they drag a woman caught in adultery before Jesus and want him to condemn her to stoning. Where's the man in that story? She And they don't care about this woman. They don't care if she's stoned or not. They, they just want to use her as a pawn, as a tool for their own end. And that's often how women were treated, but not just women. Children. And all kinds of outcasts in that culture and society, just as they are now. It's one of the, my arguments for why I believe that, that women have, should have the rights to do any kind of ministry in the church. Because I am convinced that's the way it will be in the resurrection. And the change took place, not at creation, but at the fall. When sin entered the world, that's when everything began to crumble and fall apart. And that's when people began began to look at each other differently. But in the resurrected life, we will value all people equally. 
all people will be valued equally. That's what the resurrection will be about. There will be no, you're more valuable, you're less, you're more important, you're less important, you're more significant, you're less significant. Whether it's based on something about us, something we can or can't do, it doesn't make any difference. And the resurrected life will all be valued equally. And as much as we probably would love to have a conversation and sort of adore and look at our heroes of the faith, like Abraham and Moses and and Elijah and David and Paul and Peter and John, it's hard for me to fathom a perspective of heaven in which those people will be more important than anybody else, including us. Now, we will respect them and what they've done, but so will we other people. I don't think there are any autograph books in heaven. I don't think it's going to be lined up to say, you know, Abraham will be here signing autographs for the next hour if you want to come and get, get an autograph. It made me think of when I was a kid and we would go to a family, would go to baseball games in Cincinnati. And we'd get there when the doors opened during batting practice just because we wanted to be there as long as we possibly could. But also because we'd run down to the railing by the field and try to get autographs from the players. And every so often, and they'd mosey over, and you had to be ready or they'd skip you. You have a pen, you know, with it uncapped, and you had to have your paper or ball ready to go. And, you know, they're just kind of walking down the line. They're just scribbling something on there. I don't think anybody could have ever told what that was. You know, I could have said it was Babe Ruth, and no, it would have believed me because you couldn't tell the difference. But, you know, but what I find interesting is that all of us are clamoring for their autograph. Not one player asked for my autograph. Again, I think I'm offended by that as I think about it back to the years. We didn't ask for any of our autographs because that's, we're insignificant to that cultural setting. It's the people on the field who have value and worth. We came to watch them. They didn't come to watch us. We're nothing, really, in comparison to them. I cannot fathom that being the perspective of heaven. That being the perspective of the resurrected life. And if that's not the perspective, then all of us are equal. All of us have the same value and worth. Why? Because we all bear the image of God. All the way back to creation. God created us in his image. And that's why we have value and significance. And that never changes. It's just that when the resurrection, all of a sudden, all the ways in which we can't see that and experience that in ourselves and other people will be taken away. And we will experience who we were created to be in the image of God. And that's why it's righteousness and holiness. And we will look at each other differently. We'll care for each other differently. And we'll have relationships with each other differently than we're able to do now. Someone asked me last week, do you think there'll be arguments in heaven? I pondered that for a while. I thought that was a good question. I didn't know the answer immediately. But as I've thought about it, I think the answer is yes and no. That may surprise you because our initial response is, well, no, of course. I think there will be the potential for arguments in heaven. Because while sometimes we argue now about truth, that, will be, that won't be a problem. We'll all know the truth. But we also argue, most of the time, we argue about our preferences. 
what we like, what we don't like, our opinions, our ideas. And what are we trying to do when we argue? We're trying to convince people that we're right. And I think in heaven, we are in the resurrected life, we'll all have, we'll, we'll maintain our personalities. I mean, God didn't create us with our uniqueness and he's just going to melt that away and we all just become clones. And we all just look the same and act the same and think the same. I, I can't fathom that being the case. God loves creativity and variety way too much for that. And so something about our personalities will be different and that has the potential for conflict and arguments. But we won't argue with each other because we won't care about being right. We won't care about people thinking that we're smart. We won't care about the self-satisfaction of, be, of understanding things better than other people do. All we'll care about is loving each other. All we'll care about is serving each other. All we'll care about is learning from each other. All we'll care about is having the most profoundly positive, loving relationships you could ever imagine, and then some. So while the potential is there, we won't, because our attitudes will be what Christ desires them to be. They will be what Jesus describes, or what Paul describes of Jesus in Second Corinthians or in Philippians chapter two, about having the mind of Christ of sacrifice and surrender and love and compassion. And that's all that will matter. And I got to thinking about that. If that's how things will be then, then shouldn't that be the way they are now? So if we're going to value everyone as equal then, and we pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, then shouldn't one of our major objectives be to ask God to give us eyes to see one another the way he does? And I think one of the reasons that we don't, one of the reasons we devalue people and look at people as insignificant and unimportant and people that we're trying to convince to prove to them that we are right is because we don't really believe that people bear the image of God. That was the argument for slavery. These people don't really bear the image of God, so we can treat them any way we want to. And that's the mindset about a whole lot of people groups in the world. They don't really bear the image of God, so we can do to them, treat them, think of them any way we want to. But that's not what Scripture tells us. And that's not what the life to come will be. And if our prayer is, Lord, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, then we want to have that mindset that we will have then. And we bring that mindset to ourselves and to the world. And we're doing the same thing about how we think about people and differences of opinion. That our goal is not to prove to people that we are right, it's to love. And I'm convinced that, that that is one of the most profound ways in which we glorify God. God loves it when we love each other. God is pleased when we love each other, when we see each other the way he does. That brings glory to God. And heaven will be all about bringing glory to God. When I was in seminary, I read a story about a woman who, uh, it was, it's legend, obviously, but she had a dream, she had a vision that she was in hell. And uh, she went to hell and, and she was given an image of what hell was like. 
And what she saw surprised her. It was a huge banquet table. You know, like you think of those medieval castles, and they've got those great big tables in there, and everyone's sitting around those tables and those great big chairs. And the table is filled with the greatest food you could ever imagine. Everything you would ever want to eat is on that table, heaping. And there's only one rule. Everyone has to eat with the silverware provided. And all the silverware is about four feet long. And so the people in hell and sitting in front of all this food are starving to death. In the stream, she was then transported to heaven. And even more surprising was that in heaven, she saw the exact same scene. Same table, same food, same, pe- same chairs and arrangement, same silverware. And the same rule. Everybody had to use the silverware, this four-foot-long fork and knife and spoon. But the difference was in heaven, everyone was healthy and well-fed and nurtured. And she's turned to someone and says, so what's the difference? And they said, well, here, everybody feeds each other. And they're thriving. There are lots of things about the resurrection that we do not know, we do not understand, we cannot fathom. But I'm convinced that one of the things that we can know and see and understand is that relationships will be important. And we will relate to each other in a spirit of love and grace and compassion and patience and gentleness and kindness And if that's what we're going to do then, then I would suggest that our prayers would be that God would give us the grace to do that now. That we might become more and more like him and bring glory to God. We're going to spend a few moments praying together. Praying for ourselves and praying for the world. As we pray together, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers for yourself or for someone else or just in general, then please come and join me. Father, we thank you for the, uh, the promise of the resurrection. We pray that you will help us to live as you've called us to live. That we might have the kind of relationships that bring honor and glory to you and prepare us for that day. Father, we, we pray that for the, the many things in our lives that so often burden us and, and create an atmosphere that make it difficult for us to be who you called us to be and created us to be. This morning we pray for the needs and the hurts and the burdens of our lives and of others. 
We think, Father, of relationships that are not what you desire them to be, and we know that. Prompt us to do what you call us to do. We pray for those who are seeing ahead and wondering where the future is going to go and have great life decisions in front of them. We pray for peace and guidance and wisdom. We pray, Father, for all who are grieving in the various ways it comes to us, the loss and the pain. We pray for your healing grace. We pray for all who are struggling with health issues. We pray especially today for Doug Bogdan and Barb Rangel, for Bill Duzema and Bob Jobert, for Calvin and Laurel Buecher and Warren Woolsey, for Bill Getty, Phil Muecher, Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson, for Bruce Brenneman and Bev Rett, for Micah Christensen and Linda Roth, for Dick Gould and Crystal Blake and Emily Cricklar, and for others that we think about this morning. Father, we pray for Tyler Christensen, who has been missing for a few days. We pray that you would protect him and give his family your comforting peace. Bring him home. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of this church. Thank you for all the Bible study groups that meet at various times and places and studying various uh, scriptures. We pray that your anointing would be upon them. We pray for the churches around us and think of the Hunt Baptist Church and Pastor Fulmer. And we pray your blessing upon this, this bond of believers and that they would, they would care for one another and love one another and that they would be a beacon of light to the world around them. We pray, Father, for the ministry of the Rochester Youth Association. Thank you for all that they are doing in the city of Rochester among a variety of churches and, and uh, groups of students. We pray your anointing upon all that they do. We pray, Father, for uh, the people of Flint, Michigan, as they continue to wrestle with their water situation. And we pray, Father, for the work of your kingdom around the world, and particularly we think of our brothers and sisters in North Korea. As we see uh, concerning events taking place in North Korea, missiles being launched and nuclear weapons and We pray, Father, for an end to that. And we pray, Father, for an end to the potential provocation of war. And we pray for our brothers and sisters there as they face such difficult hardships. We ask that you would give them protection and courage and strength. And that you would remove the great oppression from them. And in the midst of whatever they're facing, may they bear witness to your grace that would lead others to you. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. Thank you for all the ways you're at work in our lives, not the least of which is our relationships. Be glorified as we serve you, as we look at one another with your eyes. And we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. like to invite the ushers forward as we give back to God from all that he has blessed us with.
Truth is harder than a lie. The dark seems safer than the light. And everyone has a heart that loves to hide. I'm a mess, and so are you. We've built walls nobody can get through. Yeah, it may be hard, but the best thing we could ever do, ever do, bring your brokenness and I'll bring mine, cause love can heal what hurt divides, and mercy's waiting on the other side, if we're honest. If we're honest, don't pretend to be something that you're not. Living life afraid of getting caught. There is freedom found when we lay our secrets down at the cross. At the cross. So bring your brokenness and I'll bring mine. Cause love can her device mercy's waiting on the other side if we're honest if we're honest it would change as we sing together. Nothing in all creation can ever separate us from the love of our infinite God. And it's not that we first loved him but that he first chose to love us, even as in sin and darkness we try. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he who has lavished his love upon us has called us to love like he does. So let us
with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.